Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa. And today we have as a special guest, Max Friedman. Max is the vice president of Banyan Residential. Banyan is based in LA, but they are a uh, multifamily and mixed use developer. How you doing, Max? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So you and I met or we, I don't think we've ever met in person, right? We, but we met maybe like ha- less than a year ago, maybe nine months ago, something like that? Yeah, yeah, First about a year ago. Sounds right. Okay, Glad to know it was very memorable. <laughs> yeah. And since then, you started with a partner, Banyan Residential. Can you tell everyone what, what Banyan is? That's right, yeah. So we're just a couple of former guys who used to work at Camden Property Trust and split off at the beginning of 2019 to start a new development company. So Banyan's just a a small multifamily development group that uh, currently specializes in opportunity zone development. So for uh, those who might not be familiar with opportunity zone program, it's it's, uh, part of the tax law that was rolled out about a year and a half ago that... uh, allows investors to defer their capital gains in a real estate investment vehicle. And we've been utilizing that program as kind of the basis for launching this company and uh, have two deals funded off, off of that platform so far. Awesome. Congrats. And so that, that is like, so the funding part of that, like if the investors get some sort of, how I understand it, they get some sort of tax break. If, if you That's invest right. in a so, fund, right? Or something like that? Yeah. So if you invest in opportunity zone property, you get a number of benefits, which include a deferral of a capital gain that you may have from in, from uh, selling stock or something like that. So you get to defer defer the capital gain for a certain period of time. And then if you stay in the deal for 10 years, not only do you get a deferral of your capital gain, your, your basis gets reduced and any mm. profits that you make profits that you make in that venture over your initial kind of fair market value cost basis are exempt mm. from taxation at all. So it's a really good oh, wow. vehicle to defer taxes and also to get basically tax-free income on appreciation events. I like tax-free income. Mm-hmm. My favorite. That's my favorite kind of income. <laughs> um, maybe I should start investing in that. That's cool. So where where do you have? We'll dig into your. I guess your your ba- your background a little bit. So where do you have your investments? Yeah. So we have two deals funded in Phoenix. So one of them is in Scottsdale, and the other is in is in Phoenix, kind of Phoenix North Tempe area. Nice. And then you said I think you said one was multifamily and one was mixed use. Yeah, the uh, the Tempe Proxima deal is 223 market rate multifamily units, and the Scottsdale deal is 735 apartments, 
250,000 feet of office and 8,000 feet of retail space. Oh, wow. Slightly bigger cool. project. Yeah. Well, let's dig into your background here. So you, where did you grow up? Grew up in, uh, grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I would have said D.C., but nobody's actually from D.C. So <laughs> grew up in Potomac, Maryland, and also worked there out of, uh, out of undergrad for six years or so. Okay. Did you grow up in a real estate family, an entrepreneurial family, or anything like that? Not necessarily an entrepreneurial family, but my, uh, my uncle is a pretty prolific developer in Sacramento. And, and my grandfather was as well. So always had some exposure through the family, you know, indirectly to some of the projects that they were working on, which was part of the reason I got involved in the business. I think I coming out of college, honestly, didn't really know what exactly I wanted to be doing and mm. having some of that early exposure through, uh, through the family was definitely, uh, you know, definitely encouraged me to explore real estate as a career path. So they were, so you had an uncle and a grandfather that were doing it in Sacramento, California. Um, yep. It, it just seemed like, did you like their lifestyle or it just seemed like, did you like buildings or just kind of design? It just seemed like an just interesting didn't any, business. You just, you just didn't know both. anything else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a combination of not knowing a lot else, but also it just seemed like a really interesting business. I mean, they were both, they were both businessmen and lawyers by trade, but the development business seemed like a really cool mix of, architecture, finance, business development, financial modeling. I mean, it was kind of just all these different disciplines coming together. And mm. it, it always seemed, talking to my, my uncle and grandfather, that they were doing, running around with their hair on fire, doing something different every, every time I spoke to them. And uh, as someone who gets, you know, can get bored a little bit easily, the, the, the concept of, wearing all these different hats and getting exposure to all these different business disciplines was, was pretty interesting. Like you went to college, did you go to undergraduate? Like, all right, I'm going to go get into real estate or you just kind of had just kind of general studies in mind. I, I had no idea. I, I got my degree <laughs> in international studies, which gotcha. uh, should tell you that I wasn't particularly sure what I, what I wanted to be doing. And I got uh, mine in American studies. So the same thing. What's that? I got my degree oh, in American studies. American studies. I, I majored in American studies. That was my degree. Well, see, two, two guys who yeah. major in uh, political science, not doing anything related to political science. <laughs> I majored in that, didn't have really any concept of what I was going to do out of college. And, and uh, as many college seniors do, got into a the mad scramble second semester when life was coming at me pretty quickly to figure things out and started to explore commercial brokerage as kind of an inroad into the industry, you know, over the course of, of networking with different development and commercial real estate folks, just really like the personalities in brokerage. I thought they were animated, charismatic, seemed to have a lot of fun and enjoy what they did. And got connected with uh, one of the top office leasing brokers in D.C. and was was fortunate enough to to get an offer to work on his team. And that's how I that's how I dove in. That's awesome. So what is working on that team entail generally for people who are trying to get into that industry? Well, I was doing specifically landlord rep office leasing, which is representing 
owners of office buildings in, uh, you know, getting them leased and, and managing that process. So, you know, as a younger broker, it involves a lot of, a lot of property tours, a lot of kind of managing the existing pipeline of, of uh, different tenants that you're talking to, talking to in, in trying to get these buildings leased up. So I would say a lot of property tours, a lot of market research, drafting, you know, these proposal documents, following up with different brokers to see where their clients are at in the process. And, um, you know, as that, as I kind of grew within that role, it expanded to interacting with those clients directly a little bit more, talking to them about certain strategies for leasing up these buildings, which, you know, for kind of new development assets or bigger assets that have rolling big blocks of vacancy. I thought office brokerage was particularly interesting because there really is a deliberate strategy to figuring out how to manage that rollover. And that's where a lot of the kind of value add that an office broker provides to, uh, to their client. Then you got into development. So, I mean, as a recruiter, I see a lot of people who are in brokerage or leasing and they want to get into like yep. acquisitions or development. I mean, it's, it's not that easy to do. I, I, at least through a recruiter. I mean, how did you, how did you make that transition? I think you're right. It's not that easy to do for better or worse. I, I think the principal side investor market kind of has this perception of leasing brokers as not, not being the sharpest tools in the shed for whatever reason. It's kind of a not really justified kind of perception, but I really knew I wanted to get into development and that I didn't want to be in, in leasing for my entire career and was doing a lot of ground and pound kind of old school networking of contacting different development companies, reaching out to senior professionals on the team to try and get, you know, coffee meetings under the premise of just learning more about what they were doing and trying mm-hmm. to kind of establish a relationship with all these different folks so that I would be top of mind when they had some kind of opening and I met the COO of this company called car properties, which is a big office developer in DC. And Mm -hmm. he was the former head of leasing for Tishman Spire in DC. So we kind of had this, we kind of had this instant connection over our, both of our histories in the brokerage business. And I think that he recognized the tangible benefit of you know, having somebody who had that office leasing experience coming onto a development team and helping the execution folks think through, you know, some issues that maybe a somebody with a, a construction management background or an investment banking background, you know, just thinks a little bit differently and just, you know, have some fresh perspective in that sense. So what's the biggest difference? I mean, is it more on the development side than the leasing side. I mean, I know like it's a, the functions different, but like what what's the is there a hard skill set that you have to learn? I think the the biggest difference is that the in the development business you're you're playing quarterback and you you have to be an effective generalist in a lot of different disciplines. So you have to be solid in you know financial underwriting, contract negotiation managing different personalities from, you know, an architect to a lawyer to an insurance broker, being able to, to you know, present to investors. I, there, there's a, a much wider skill set, I think, that 
kind of benefits people who like to wear a bunch of different hats at once. Whereas I think in, in the brokerage business, maybe not to the same, that doesn't happen to the same extent. And you end up specializing a lot more in kind of, you know, relationships in your local market, what's going on in that local market. And a lot of your value proposition in, in, in brokerage being more being in the know about what's going on, what tenants are looking for new space, what owners are entering in the market and, and having those relationships with, uh, with specific folks. And did you, did you have that skill set or did you have to learn that? Like as far as the, the underwriting part? I had to learn it. I didn't have it at all. So when I knew that I wanted to get into development, I enrolled in night school at uh, Georgetown University in their master's of real estate program. And that kind of gave me some of the basis for the underwriting. I also took a, uh, there's a program called getrefm.com that offers like financial modeling classes. So I did that. I got an Argus certification. I, I knew that my lack of underwriting experience was going to be a big detractor relative to, you know, a banker or a, uh, somebody that already had that kind of modeling experience coming in. Mm -hmm. So I was just trying to show people on the principal side that I was serious about, yeah. you know, about sharpening up that skill set. So you, you would recommend somebody who's, you know, necessarily doesn't have that technical side or didn't learn that in undergrad, take some courses in that or even obtain a master's. A hundred percent. I would say that, um, Real estate financial modeling isn't rocket science, and the the concepts are pretty easy to learn. I think if you put in a little bit of time to go through one of these certification programs, it, it'll go a long way. And I and I don't necessarily think that getting a master's degree is something that's that's necessary to make that hat to make that transition happen. Although it it definitely helps. Gotcha. And then, all right, so you're in D.C staying at home and then you made it, you went over to LA. What'd you get a craving for surfing or something? What happened? You know, just wanted to, to work on my tan and look, I always, uh, I, I kind of always wanted to live in Southern California. I had some buddies who, who lived there. And when I was in college and went out to visit, I just, I always loved the place and, and want to be there. And, and also, you know, I'm from D.C. All of my close friends are, are in D.C. Kind of had a feeling that I wanted to just do something new and experiment with a new place while I was, uh, you know, single, didn't have any kids and could explore. Yeah. And was it hard to do to get a job at, in L.A.? Yeah. So the hardest thing to answer your second question first, the, the hardest thing about getting a new job is trying to prove out to people that you're real and that you actually are going to move. Uh, I think a lot yeah. of people just say, you know, okay, this guy's in DC. What's, you know, what's his story when they have 50 other resumes on their desk from people who are already in Los Angeles. So mm -hmm. I made a specific point to, you know, I was just like when I got my job at car, I just used kind of an old school ground and pound networking approach and was just setting up, you know, probably spent two or three months just setting up informational calls to start to build a Rolodex in LA which was non-existent before. And then once I had a little bit of a Rolodex, I flew out to LA two or three times to just meet some people in person and try and get traction that way. And then eventually 
met the guy who ran the Camden West Coast office through actually a friend of mine in D.C. who worked in the Camden D.C. office. So gotcha. networking, on one of those kind of networking, old school networking. So and yeah, to answer your first question about kind of jumping into the development world in a different jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, every market that we're in is a little bit different. I think California in particular is arguably the the most challenging just because there's there's uh environmental law, sequel environmental law, the development regulations in Los Angeles specifically are are uh somewhat complicated to understand in terms of the different limitations, the different uh transit oriented community initiatives. It was definitely more complicated to pick up. Yeah. Well, I'm in the Bay Area, so yeah, it's like impossible to do anything out here. It's crazy. Um, yeah, right. It's a nightmare. So you were at some big shops, Car, I mean TBRE, Car, Camden, and then you're like, I'm tired of all this stability in my life. <laughs> I want to go up. out and, uh, you know, yeah, shake things up and go out on a limb there. And so tell me about how and why you took that leap of faith to start do a startup. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So I, I think there were two big reasons. One was I'm a single guy. I don't have any kids. And just thinking about the risk profile, this is probably the only time that I'm going to be able to take this kind of risk where if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, I'm going to be totally fine. And, you know, I don't have any obligations with respect to dependents that I need to pay attention to. So that flexibility was one piece. And the other was at these big companies, I think you, uh, you learn a lot earlier in your career, but a lot of these big companies are a little bit more hierarchical and, you know, in a design meeting, there may be 15 people there and kind of just felt like I had a better opportunity in an entrepreneurial organization to take on a little bit more of that execution responsibility and not be siloed like a lot of these uh, larger, you know, companies operate where if you're an acquisitions guy, you are only underwriting new potential acquisitions deals, or if you're a development guy, you're only responsible for, you know, entitlements and design. Uh, whereas in an entrepreneurial organization, I have to do the underwriting, the project accounting, all, all of it together. Gotcha. So how do you start out? Like you and your partner meet up one day and say, hey, let's, or does he come to you and say, I, I got a possible deal. I got a possible investor. Like, where's it, where's it even start? My uh, my partner Ben Brasso, hashtag Ben Brasso. Ben <laughs> is the founder of the company, and he uh, he basically tied up a deal, the the large deal that we have in Scottsdale. And as soon as that deal was tied up, was going through the due diligence process, and and once we basically realized that the deal was going to get funded, that there were no major due diligence issues, approached me to you know, come on board as, as his right hand man, basically to help execute on that project. So I think it was a unique mm -hmm. situation in that you hear from a lot of development guys that starting a company is really difficult because you have to keep the lights on. So the development yeah. fee income is a really important component. 
you have to find the equity for these deals, figure out how they're going to get funded. And this Scottsdale deal was a real blessing because the size of the project kind of provided some fee runway in, in the sense that that will help keep the lights on so that we can, you know, pursue execution on that project, but also new deals and, and not have to worry so much about the administrative piece. Yeah. And so are you guys managing these properties too? Yeah, we're going to do third party management. So one of our equity partners is going to manage the, the larger project. And then on the other market rate deal that we have, that's, 223 units we're going to be we're going to be hiring a third party manager and and part of that decision is deliberate right i mean we're at a point in this cycle where nobody knows what's going to happen people have been saying we're going to hit a recession for two years now it could happen in a month it could happen in a year and Mm. it was a it was a deliberate decision to do third party management third party construction management third party accounting really outsource everything so that if things hit the fan, we're kind of positioned to adapt to that and don't have a payroll yep. of, of 50 people just allows us to be a little bit more nimble. Yeah. I like that. That makes, that makes sense. And speaking of which, I mean, where do you guys anticipate the market going? What are you seeing out there as far as the market people? Still very well, active? I think for right now, the acquisitions market doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, in Southern California, we're every deal that, comes across our desk to underwrite that's an operating property is a three cap, which for a myriad of reasons doesn't really make sense as an investment. So for yeah. now, given how tight things are in the acquisitions market, we still think that development is really the best place to take advantage of spreads. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's still becoming even more challenging. I mean, construction cost inflation continues to be a problem. I think last year we saw a five, six percent increase in construction costs year over year. And when that's yeah. sixty to seventy percent of your overall project cost, that's what really kind of moves the needle in uh in yields. So things are tough out there right now, but I think the opportunities provided by the O Z program combined with uh just hunting for good deals. They're they're still out there to be found. What what do you recommend for people? Yeah, like deals have to be they're not going to fall on your lap. Like how are you hunting for deals, or what, what? How do you recommend people hunt for deals? It's it's a relationship game, right? I mean, it's establishing relationships with brokers in your local market and um, getting to know them and making sure that they know that you're going to take care of them in a deal and showing them that you're real in terms of being able to close. So I think broker relationships is an important part. And then just kind of becoming, you know, establishing relationships also with different operators in the local market that you're looking at. Because, you know, if you're underwriting a deal and it may not work for you, that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't work for somebody else. And to the extent that you're willing to share information with other, you know, developers or sponsors and help feed them a deal that may fit their bailiwick, you, you just never know when a, when a deal is going to come around your way from that kind of information sharing type of attitude. That was basically relationships. 
Definitely. It just makes it easy. Like all the technology we have just makes relationships hopefully a little easier, right? But at the end of the day, it's about meeting a ton of different people and like offering value to them. Right. I mean, they do and they don't at the same time. Like people are people, especially younger people who are more dialed into phones and the internet are just more likely to be sitting behind their computer and not go out there and see someone face to face. So I, you know, bottom line, I think that still goes a long way. Yeah. With the opportunity zone, you, you have certain markets right there that they're designated as opportunity zones. So you have to kind of invest within them. Someone who's not that familiar, are there certain markets that are already congested? Open territory. It kind of depends on the local market. So in in every in every state, the governor of each state designates certain census tracts within the state that are indicated to be opportunity zone, you know, tracts. And in some states, there are decent pockets of opportunity zone property where you would want to, you know, develop in the next ten years. And in other markets, they're crap and you don't want to touch anything. So I think the trick is finding an opportunity zone area that's, you know, proximate to a downtown core that you like, you know, for example, in LA parts of the arts district are part of the opportunity zone in Dallas Bishop arts area, which is kind of like the, the, uh, op zone area or sorry, the, uh, arts district area of Dallas qualifies in, in Phoenix, a lot of, you know, areas near Tempe and Scottsdale qualify. So I think it's just digging through the maps for every state that you want to do a deal in and trying to determine, you know, where the the crossover might benefit you. Uh And are you guys strictly going to do only opportunities or it just makes sense now you guys can just pivot whenever you want? It makes sense now because the amount of equity that's available and actively looking to fund in opportunity zones is very, very strong. But, you know, that being said, we're not the only guys out there looking for opportunity zone deals. And while the benefit lasts for a long time, the number of sites, especially those that are positioned for development, are just going to shrink. So I think at a certain point, we're definitely going to need to pivot and you know, adapt to, to the marketplace and, and whatever's going on in maybe two to three years, but it feels like there's still a good runway to continue to take down some of these sites for at least that amount of time. Yeah. I just, I also don't think a lot of people understand it, like at least investors shops. So yeah, look, there's a lot, there's a ton of people out there that say they're doing opportunity zones and, but aren't necessarily doing opportunity zone deals. So I think there's definitely a big hurdle to understand, understand, you know, where the regulations are with the IRS and the complexities of, you know, how to deploy capital while complying with the regulations, which have 20 or 30 layers to themselves that, you know, a lot of investors find daunting. And especially when those regulations continue to adapt and are not 100% set in stone, that also filters out a pool you know, of equity that wants a little bit more security. Gotcha. And so what's your, what's your guys, you have like a five-year plan. Where do you see banning going over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think, I think our five-year plan is just to try and continue to grow as a 
as a new development company and add to the pipeline. I mean, we've got some other stuff under contract right now, which I can't can't really share at the moment in uh, in Phoenix and a couple of other markets. But I think the goal is to try to feed the pipe and grow the team, bring on some more folks, allow us to be a little bit less, you know, overextended to continue to chase new stuff and kind of diversify our risk from a market concentration standpoint and just keep keep feeding the machine, baby. Feed that machine. Love mm-hmm. it. Well, that's awesome. Well, congratulations on all your success. You made the right move starting this thing. Yeah, thank you. It's worth it. So kind far, of, so good. Kind of building, you're building your own thing. Yeah. So now we're going to dig into our, our, our questions we ask, kind of not somewhat related, but kind of more uh, not specific cool. to real estate. What books do you recommend or what books have, have influenced you? Books. Hmm. I don't have a, uh, I don't have a favorite book per se. I just finished reading, uh, I just finished reading this book called How America Lost Its Secrets, which is kind of an expose on Edward Snowden. It's just a really thought provoking book that provides a little bit of perspective on, you know, what happened with Edward Snowden, what his motivations really were, and just kind of questions the narrative that Edward Snowden is this American privacy rights hero who um, had the interest of, you know, America's citizens at the forefront of his mind, it just kind of questions that premise and just pretty interesting read. I have not read that one. That, uh, yeah, Check I've heard that out. in a while, actually. He was big for yeah. a while. Snowden. And how about you podcast? Are you a podcast, podcast listener? Yeah, I listen to a few. I listen to... Uh, I honestly don't really listen to too many business podcasts just because I feel like I'm still working when, when I do that. So I like, <laughs> yeah. uh, part of my take is a, is a sports podcast that Barstool Sports runs that I really like. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm kind of a history nerd and I like hardcore history is another good one. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, that's good. He's great. Yeah. Try and keep it, try and keep You're it like- light though. That was actually the first podcast I got into. I was like, wow, this is amazing. They opened up my world. So for me, I do like meditation. I, I exercise. Do you do anything like that to keep you, that kind of keeps me centered and sane. Do you, do you do anything like that? Totally. Yeah. All of it. I uh, like to go to the gym, a big surfer since I moved to LA and, uh, and, and meditate as well. I love it all. I know that's such a, typical LA answer probably, you know. I know. I'm sure like you're I'm sure you're rollerblading right like now. Do yoga. Yeah, yeah. What advice would you give to your younger self or twenty year old self? I would probably say not to not to underestimate the value of, of old school networking. Every job that I've uh ever gotten in the business is all through just kind of ground and pound networking, picking up the phone, cold calling and emailing people, trying to learn more about their business, what motivates them. I mean, just establishing relationships with people, taking a genuine interest in in what they're doing and um, staying in touch and acknowledging that, you know, especially in development and acquisitions, a lot of, a lot of companies staff light and, the, the available positions are often few and far between. So to the extent that you can stay top of mind with, 
either, you know, a recruiter or somebody at the development shop so that when there is an opening, the, the most likely people that they're going to call are the people that they think of first and the referrals yeah. that they may get from these types of sources, not a stack of resumes that's a hundred deep from an online yeah. job posting. And the people that they like the best, right? You got you to be likable. Exactly. Now, what do you look for when you're hiring someone or you're, or you're hiring a, uh, a service provider? I, I would say in terms of a direct hire, it's A, somebody that we like and that we can see ourselves hanging out with. I mean, I think that's, you know, fit is a really important component. And then on the kind of development execution piece, it's somebody that can plug and play and kind of already understands the basics of underwriting and financial evaluation and how a development deal kind of pencils conceptually, but also that either wants to explore or has some experience with the project management piece and can kind of juggle a bunch of different balls and responsibilities at the same time and kind of enjoys that type of atmosphere where they're like dealing with fire drills all the time and wearing a bunch of different hats. And then on the service provider front, it's a, it's a referral based business. So I think a lot of times, yeah. you know, for an architect or something, it's talking to other developers about who they've used, who they've had a good experience with. These development projects are like three or four year time horizons. So the likability, you know, piece is also pretty important because you spend hundreds of hours with a lot of your primary consultants and, uh, just makes life easier to have, uh, to, to work with groups that you, you can have a good time with. Yeah. That's great, man. Well, thanks. It was very informative. Yeah. It's absolutely. fun getting to know you a little better. Look forward to seeing all the future growth with Banyan and keep us informed or keep me informed. And, uh, totally. thanks we'll again for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG real estate podcast. Please visit us online at tbg-realestate.com or on Instagram at tbg.realestate. Until next time, have a great week.